0: This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Keysi. Dr. Elizabeth Sewell, Dr. Susan Cohen, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Oh, thank you. It's our pleasure. So you both collaborated on the EB Neo commentary for the article, um, Interventions to Reduce Severe Brain Injury Risk in Preterm Neonates, a Systematic Review and meta-analysis. So to get us started, for those uh, who maybe haven't had the opportunity to review the article, uh, maybe you can just begin with a summary of the article. Sure. Um, so the PICO question for this article was, among infants
1: born less than 37 weeks gestation, which perinatal interventions compared to standard care result in a reduced risk of severe brain injury before discharge? So this was a systematic review with six to effects pairwise meta-analysis used for the data synthesis. It was consisted of preterm infants with a gestational age less than 37 weeks or in term and preterm neonates for whom the data could be extracted and they used a variety of data sources including Medline, and Base and all and they searched um, from inception through September 8th, 2022, using pre-specified search terms with no language restriction. However, they were pretty strict on their study selection, so they only included randomized clinical trials wow. that evaluated perinatal intervention, chosen beforehand, and reported at least one or more of the primary outcomes. Two independent art authors searched the databases, evaluated the quality of studies and assigned a score for the certainty of evidence based on Cochrane grade approach. There were three pre-specified outcomes that included severe intraventricular hemorrhage which was defined as grade 3 or 4, cystic periventricular leukomalacia which was defined as necrosis of the white matter near the lateral ventricle or severe brain injury, which was defined as severe intraventricular hemorrhage or cystic periventricular leukomalacia. I'll let Susan now talk about the result.
2: Well, they were able to sort of narrow down their sample size, and so they used the fixed effects pairwise meta-analysis of 221 randomized control trials, and they evaluated 44 perinatal inv- interventions. Six of them were antenatal, six were delivery room interventions, and 32 uh, were neonatal interventions. And what this this real big group of like data was sort of synthesized into certain categories, where they looked at the outcome measure, the certainty of evidence, the effect size. Um, the risk ratio and the, you know, and the number to treat or harm. And then they were able to identify that there were several interventions associated with reduce um, severe IVH in preterm infants, but really six came out to the top. And two of them were really the ones with the most amount of certainty of the evidence, which were antenatal steroids and endomethacin prophylaxis. Um, they did identify one that potentially was harmful, um, which was umbilical cord milking. But the they want to like really stress that clinicians should carefully consider interventions in the context of the certainty of evidence, the effect size, and the clinical context of specific neonatal units. And then that further studies are needed to evaluate these interventions and include potentially neurodevelopmental outcomes as another out- thing, thing to consider. But then, yeah, we we basically then took this paper and Liz and I sort of discussed the idea that, you know, the idea of adding grade, which is this certainty of evidence, when you look at a meta-analysis was really quite unique in this this paper.
1: I love this paper because I think this topic is so complex and it can be really overwhelming because this has been, you know, I feel like for years we've been trying to reduce the the rate of intraventricular hemorrhage in preterm infants. And it's really the rate over the last couple of decades has really been quite stagnant. And so I love that this paper really was the the first that I'm aware of that really tried to be comprehensive. And really rigorous in terms of the methods to try to compare this for the clinician that's in their unit, really trying to do the best they can for their unit and for individual babies. So I really, um, I really I'm really, i sure it took a lot of work, but I really appreciate all the effort that the authors put into this because I really think it's going to be useful to take back to the bedside
2: what I thought was unique of like balancing effect size and the certainty of evidence to me I felt like that really because we talk a lot about like the effect size and particularly when you're in this fixed effects a uh, fixed effect meta-analysis they um uh, weigh larger studies you know where the the number of patients included sort of like skews the sort of the analysis so that their results sort of Sort of rises to the top, but then balancing it with the certainty of evidence and the heterogeneity of the studies also kind of gave sort of a little more um, depth to the analysis. And for me, I feel like that's really clinically relevant.
0: Well, I wanted to, you highlighted two of the interventions antenatal corticosteroids and endomethacin prophylaxis. I was just going to run down what the other big hitters were. They included umbilical cord milking, volume-targeted ventilation, prophylactic thamsolate administration, um, early erythropoiesis-stimulating agents, and high-frequency oscillatory ventilation. And so, you know, I think to your point, what you were talking about, so um, we could have a, a variety of levels of certainty of evidence, a variety of effect size, and number needed to treat. Many of these interventions um, had a large effect size or reasonably low number needed to treat, which is excellent, but they may have um, low certainty of evidence. So how do you think we should
2: evaluate these interventions? Yeah, I think that, you know, the certainty of evidence, really that, that grade approach, allowing us to kind of look at the methodology and weighing the, the, um, rigorousness uh, and the uh, reproducibility of the studies. Uh, to me, I think it, it was something I'd never thought about before, you know, because I assumed that when they did the fix, the, the meta-analyses, those kind of were sort of removed or if they were not rigorous. But then it's even those studies that are large and done well sometimes have sort of deviations, from their original studies. And so to me, I felt like the the effect size, like things like we, I think Liz and I talked about like volume targeted ventilation. We were discussing like a lot of people probably use that. And it was a little shocking that the effect size was large, but the certainty of the evidence was low. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also like antenatal steroids where the effect size was small but the certainty of evidence was moderate. So it added a little texture to the (laughs) interpretation.
1: Well, and I think if you're thinking about how to apply this in your unit, I think volume targeted ventilation really is standard of care for a lot of units. Uh, For other reasons, completely unrelated, right, to intraventricular hemorrhage. And so when you think about how to apply this in your unit, you may already be doing that. And so you may not get as much of a bang for your buck focusing on that intervention. Um, as you may for something, um, that, that is less common
2: in your unit. I think one of the more controversial things that I thought in this study was the indomethacin prophylaxis. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of, um, spicy feelings about that. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, uh, indomethacin prophylaxis, I think is one of those things that have kind of come and gone and, in, in in many units, um, perhaps isn't something that we utilize. Mm -hmm. And this sort of highlighted that the evidence was actually pretty moderate to strong. um, And the certainty of the evidence um, may warrant a second look in a certain populations. They did go as far as saying that though, we have to pause and say that the neurodevelopmental outcomes were not a consideration in the study. But I think Liz actually was the one that sort of wrote about this part in the commentary about how parental um, opinion on hearing whether or not there's a bleed in someone's mm-hmm. head versus their neurodevelopmental outcome may be poor and how they interpret that when they're making decisions. And we don't make any decision only by ourselves. So the partnership of sharing this information with families and other decision makers, I think is a very important component.
1: Yeah, I always have mixed feelings on this because I, I trained where we did not use in a medicine. And then where I practice now we originally were, and now it's it's a pretty mixed bag. And so I think especially when you have situations where the evidence is unclear, it's probably even more important to take it back to the bedside and ask the parents. You know, and really, really talk to them about their thoughts. I think the challenge is, is that this happens so quickly after delivery uh-huh. that, that it is hard to find the right opportunity to sit down and, and, and have these discussions. Um, but I think it's, it's really important to get their thoughts, even if there's no benefit or proven benefit or it's controversial for neurodevelopmental outcomes. I think if you ask parents, if they had, we had a medicine that had the potential to decrease the risk for hemorrhage in the brain, I think we might be surprised at, at what some of their answers are. And so I think thinking about different ways to include parental and family decision-makers, even if it's not for an individual patient, but kind of gathering their opinion um, may be really influential and maybe different than what we think as providers.
0: Yeah, I think that's such an important point. You know, we, we're we really, as a community, working to target severe IVH. And, you know, I've found that even when babies have a quote-unquote low grade of IVH, I mean, the parents are definitively affected by this news. Um, And so I wonder if you had any tips about this shared decision-making around, I think, what's really important to families. You know, we we talk about BPD and we talk about cardiac disease, but when we talk about the brain, I mean, the parents are really trying to pay attention, right? So this um, is a very important feature of our care, I think, to parents, uh, whether or not it, it, it changes neurodevelopmental outcome. So any just tips on working at the bedside with shared decision-making, especially for some of these interventions that still carry some risk associated with them.
2: Yeah. Well, I, you know, because I, I span two locations in our, our NICU, both in the follow-up clinic, as well as in the NICU. And I, I've I've tried recently to like lead with what matters most, you you know, and like asking that question, right? Like just leading with what matters most, because sometimes I can come in with my own sort of pre-concocted conversation Mm -hmm. and recognize that I missed the entire boat on what a family wants to talk about and what they're fearing and maybe whatever previous experience and also asking, like, do you have any experience with prematurity? Uh, Maybe they Mm -hmm. have a lived experience with a family member or a friend, and that might be an influential part of the conversation. Um, So I think that to me helps with that conversation opener. And then it leads you down the path that can really sort of partner with a family where sometimes you have to get there fast.
1: Mm-hmm. So we're, we are taking a little bit of a different approach at Emory. Um, and instead of trying to have these rush conversations right after delivery and um, with the health as a community partner, we have formed a parent mm-hmm. advisory group and a lived experience advisory group to really help and um, help give us some insight from families and to help us try to rank in order of importance which interventions we should be focusing on first with the idea to, you know, one day try to do all of them. Um, But instead of just having the neonatologists and our bedside nurses and actual clinicians making the decision, we've really tried to partner so that we can make sure that we are including that voice that is a different experience that we may not have.
2: Oh, I love that.
0: Yeah, I especially, that's so important, right? Uh, You know, no conversation about us without us, right? We we have to decide um, what we can't do all of, most units can't do all the interventions all at once, right? Because our resources are limited. Our time for educating the staff is limited. So we have to pick something. Um, and so I, I think that's so valuable is, is saying what's important to families, but specifically what's important to families in our unit, in our demographic. And that may change, I think, uh, across, uh, the country. So, so I, I was go ahead, just going to
1: say, I agree. I think that if, if somebody took the same set of questions that we asked, and the same interventions, and did it in a different hospital, in a different part of the country, with a different makeup of the population, I, I would imagine that you would get different answers, and particularly around what's already strengths and weaknesses in your individual NICU. So I think um, I think while the framework can be applicable, I think the results may actually be
2: quite different. And that's why I think the authors of this paper really kind of highlight that, that the each unit has to sort of bring these Pieces of information together, and the effect size and the certainty of evidence, and then the number to treat that kind of highlights that each unit has their own characteristics that might sort of influence or nuance the way that they interpret these interventions. I I
1: agree completely. They did such a nice job. I, I actually we didn't we didn't talk about this earlier, but I really love the fact that they gave both relative risk and absolute risk difference. I think that. And I think that's hard for some people to understand, but I think having both allows you to have a, a better conversation with the family um, and and each individual infant's risk is going to be different. So I really love that they did that so that we can kind of tailor the conversation. But I also think that they did a nice job, Susan, like you said, of really saying, here's the evidence, but it may be applied differently. And it's really important to take those conversations and in, in your individual unit into account. So
0: yeah So we've talked a lot about the individual interventions, um, but you guys mentioned this briefly also in the commentary. Let's talk a little bit about IVH bundles. So do you think that the effects of each of these interventions are additive when we put them together? I sure hope
2: so. Uh, <laughs> that's I sure hope so because right? like the the additive like uh, especially as units start to incorporate these small baby, like guidelines, these small baby units with like a, a focus group of physicians and nursing staff who are kind of caring for this patient population. Um, I hope that we find ways to bundle really effective aspects of care. Um, and I was curious because there are other things that they didn't talk about, like, you know, head positioning and, and various aspects of handling. Um, that perhaps maybe have things to, like, contributions that were not measured in the study. And maybe that's where, like, further studies are necessary to have that robust sort of data set.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that there's been an RCT on positioning and handling right, and so it would have been hard for them to include that kind of given the, the study design. Um, but I, I do think that this study, if you haven't designed an, an intervention bundle and you're considering starting that in your unit, I think this study gives you um, some food for thought and some ideas about where to start, where you might get the most bang for your buck. And then depending on the situation of your individual unit, you may add pieces from here, from here or there.
2: The one thing that I was a little bit shocked about was the ethamsalate. I had to actually look mm-hmm. it up because I had never mm-hmm. used it before. <laughs> And it's a very um, dated study. So also recognizing that current practice may not be sort of timely for some of the things that were reported in the paper. Maybe that might be a pause for me, like going and looking at the evidence and suggesting that, you know, right there, they said the certainty of evidence is low, even though the effect size was moderate.
0: Yeah, I was surprised actually how many... Things are being treated with thamsolate, which I had not heard of before uh, when I had to, to look it up. So, you know, we'll, we'll see if we start to, to see um, more information on it in our neonatal population. Um, you guys had mentioned like uh, head positioning, which is part of the kind of 44 um, interventions they were hoping to, to look at. Um, I wonder if there was anything else on that list that surprised you, um, that didn't rise to the top. Something, things that we, uh, use as kind of dogma in the NICU, um, but didn't yeah, It was not a winner. Yeah,
2: it wasn't. A, like, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the jet ventilator versus, you know, high frequency. Um, you can see here that high frequency had a moderate effect, but like a low certainty of evidence. And I've had that privilege of talking to the folks in certain units that have very strong feelings about mode of ventilation. And so to me, I thought that was striking that the evidence didn't really provide um, like Firm confirmation that those eff- those uh, interventions were, um, you know, IVH um, supportive or like you know, protective. Um, what was other? There was a few other things that I thought, like you know, also you know, there's a lot of discussions about hemodynamics, mm-hmm. um, the the value of hemody- hemodynamics, and then the various um, uh, medications and treatment of. Um, blood pressure. I thought I would have thought maybe would have risen to the top, but it didn't. Yeah, I mean, I think we talk so much about that, and we really want there to be an easy solution, and
1: there, there just isn't. There, there have definitely been bundles that have had a particular practice protocol for hemodynamics and for blood pressure, and when they use, you know, medication to treat it, and when they don't, and as a whole, the some of those bundles have, have reduced, you know, the, the rate of severe brain injury in certain units. But I think when you implement something as a bundle, it's really hard to know which factor in that bundle really had the biggest impact. And so I really, I really, we haven't seen a lot of conclusive evidence,
0: unfortunately. Well, as we're nearing the end of our time together, I wonder um, if, if you have any last-minute uh, thoughts or take home points about the the future of neonatal neurocritical care? Um, what, you know, what should we be looking for next?
2: Oh, wow. The, you know, that's a big topic. <laughs> um, I do think that, you know, more focused management of, you know, neurocritical care will, uh, more and more units are implementing these neurocritical care um, teams um, with, bringing people with multiple expertise, Um, the partnerships between neurologists and neonatologists, I think is only highlighted with the fact that there's going to be a fellowship that's board certified Mm -hmm. in the coming years. I think that's going to bring a lot of important um, focus on that. And I bet it's going to be collaborative with the hemodynamic teams that um, that are arriving too. I think that's on the horizon. It's exciting. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think I get really excited about all of the quality opportunities that exist for this. And, you know, right now, neuronic use are really only at certain centers, and I'm really hopeful that we are going to see some of that outreach um, so that we can see a much broader impact at, at some other centers across the state that may not have access to neurologists but still want to see
0: benefits for their patients. Amazing. Amazing. Okay, Dr. Cohen, Dr. Sowell, thank you so much for your time and sharing your
2: expertise on the topic. Oh, thanks for having us. This was fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Incubator Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NikuPodcast or through our website at www.the-incubator.org.